Hi folks, I just wanted to pop in here really quick before we start the episode and apologize because I got the credits wrong on this one. So let me extend an apology to both Matrix Software and everybody else who has a brain tweak whenever I get it wrong. Alright, on with the show. Hey there, folks, and welcome to another episode of Operation Sequel, where I have a stuffy nose, and we're talking about Final Fantasy III. Now, as per our usual, we'll just get the stats out of the way real quick. Final Fantasy III was released in Japan only in April 1990, and it didn't come to North America until 2006 on the DS in November, and in September of 2012, it hit the PSP, which is the version I have played. Now, this hasn't been remade or redistributed very often. Uh, it has made it to the iOS, Android, Windows, and more importantly, the Ouya, because that's in everybody's home. On the original side, the Famicom cart, we have a lot of the same staff that worked on the remake, but there are a few differences. So in the director slot, we have Hironobu Sakaguchi. In the designer slot, we have Hiromichi Tanaka and Kazuhiko Aoki. The artist was, of course, Yoshitaka Amano, and the composer was Nobuo Uematsu. Now, on the PSP remake, I'm sorry I didn't look up the DS remake, but the director was different. It was a Yoichi Yoshimoto. Designer was the same, the artist was the same, and the composer was the same. So, they really kept it close to the original on this one. Now, before we get into the pros, cons, my thoughts, that kind of stuff, here we go with the manual blurb. So, get comfy. I would suggest a fireplace, a smoking jacket, and a bag of bugles. The Golgan thus prophesied. The earthquake was only the beginning. The great tremors that swallowed the crystals, the light of our world, only to spawn monsters from the depths of the scarred land are nothing but harbingers of what has yet to come. Something is coming. Fathomless, ominous, and full of sorrow. But hope is not yet lost. Four souls will be blessed with light, and so it shall begin. Now those, those four souls that it's talking about in the PSP and DS remake, those are Lunith, Ark, Refia, and Ingus, which is very hard not to say Ignis after uh, Final Fantasy XV. So right off the bat, as soon as you boot it up, you're greeted with this wonderful cinematic. The uh, cinematic really made me want to play. It reminded me a lot of Final Fantasy XIV, and that's kind of funny because where I stopped was, you know, I finished the World of Darkness, I guess, raid. is I can't remember what exactly you call it. But yeah, so I was very interested to see where all that stuff came from that I saw on that raid. And the cinematic did a very good job. I mean, they have the nice CG behemoth, and it's always nice to see that. I miss when CG cutscenes were a reward or something to get you enticed into playing the game. I do kind of miss that in a lot of games. So every time I start a new Final Fantasy game, I have a bit of a ritual. Uh, the lights go down, the wife gets kicked out of the room, and put headphones on so you can hear it. Every time, without fail, when I start a new one, you hear that prelude and you get those shivers down your spine. Still happens here, even though I'm not sure if the soundtrack is quite up to snuff, but we'll talk about that later. It's not quite bad, I just have some weird tweaks about it. So the game does start right into the action. You get dropped into a cave, and bam, you're in a fight with some goblins. It was nice to just snap right into it instead of the lengthy prelude and all that fun stuff. 
there are some pros and cons, like I said earlier. It, it's going to kind of be like the Final Fantasy II episode where I'm just going to kind of flutter back and forth, right? So, in its defense, it looks nice, the, the PSP remake. This is the first Final Fantasy I've played on, on PSP, and I actually did that through Vita TV, which is a wonderful thing for playing, you know, digital PSP games. Everything looked nice. It does look a little funky in the fact that it almost looks like, if this makes any sense, it looks like a PS1 game trying to render PS2 textures. You can tell some details there, but it's not necessarily there in the models, if you know what I mean. It, it just struck me as odd. I could also just be weird. Auto Battle is a really nice addition to this because you will be doing some farming if you want your job levels up there or you just want your characters up there in level you're going to be doing some farming and having that auto battle is nice the only thing is it would have been great if at the end of every battle where you know you get your gill and your experience points and arc may have leveled up stuff like that if you didn't have to press x because if you could just wander around the map have it go into auto battle finish out back on the map you could just wander around i mean this would be a great grind while watching a TV show game, but every once in a while you forget to press the X button and you just end up sitting there on the results screen while you're watching The Wire again for the fourth time. These are speaking protagonists. They don't exactly have the you know most fulfilling of characterization, but they are speaking protagonists and I like where they go with them. They're childlike. They're not brooding. They're not dark. They're just kind of happy-go-lucky in a way, and that, that's a nice change of pace. I do like that. Speaking of those protagonists that are, you know, speaking, you do form the group quite quickly, and that's another bonus. Like, I recently played through uh, Dragon Quest II, and I believe it's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite a while before you get both party members. I mean, it's still within, like, the first seven hours of the game, but I don't like starting out knowing I have party members I'm gonna have to level up and all that and not have them right away. You get them here all very, very quickly, which is great. As I said before, there are four characters. This has an interesting idea of a wildcard fifth slot. So what this is, is it's an NPC that will be tagging along like Sid because he wants to get to another town and he decides to travel with you. You know, something like that. Kind of contrived, but it makes sense within the story. And they're kind of like Odin was in, in 8, I believe, where he just has a random chance to pop up and do either a spell or a melee attack and that's what they do here it's very nice it, it, it just adds a little bit of fluff sometimes it'll come in and you know you're down on your last legs and Sid will come in and smack the guy with a giant hammer and you win you get a reprieve on death which is really nice because you can only save on the world map now I bucked up against this really hard because I, I don't always remember to save. It's kind of a problem I have. So I'll spend a good three hours farming in one of the dungeons and forget I didn't save and go, okay, time for the boss. Go outside, rest up, come back in, go for the boss, lose. And I didn't just lose a little bit of time. I just lost a lot of time. It actually happened to me quite a bit this time and it was really frustrating. I get it. It does add that difficulty to it of strategically knowing where to save or making sure that you know you don't just keep throwing yourself up against something because you have to work your way all the way through the dungeon and you'll never have a save perfectly set for when you're about to hit the boss and you can just you know keep throwing yourself against it. I get that. It's just if I could remember to save every time I hit the world map that would be great. Now this Final Fantasy does have a couple firsts. Big one is the special commands. This is the first one to have Dragoons with Jump, or Monks with Retaliate, or ones that I can't think of at the moment. You know, Warriors get Advance, Rangers get Barrage, you know, things like that. Every class has that special ability. Scholars really get borked in that department because all they get is 
basically Libra, which lets you see the stats and elemental weaknesses of an enemy, and it's a spell, so there's really no point to it, but that's that's kind of beside the point. But yes, it, it's the first one for that. Uh, it's also the first one for Moogles, which is pretty cool because those little guys are cute. I'll take a Moogle over a Chocobo. But yeah, uh, in the remake, they are the Magnet, which is the male. You can receive mail from NPCs that you've talked to and sometimes it'll like it does open up the Onion Knight class it does open up a dungeon later on really later on but yeah it, it's a nice little thing the story is boring you know it does that Final Fantasy thing where it starts off small where you you know you leave home ready to set out for adventure and you come across a cursed village and the game revolves around you know freeing that cursed village for a little while and then after that it kind of opens up except this time it was kind of boring now the story does feel very much like a fairy tale and that i i like that but it didn't feel like an interesting fairy tale it was just kind of bleh, you know I, it it something about it just didn't grab me i don't know why but it just didn't uh, speaking of things that didn't grab me or were at least perplexing is the soundtracks are great like there is the option to listen to both the Famicom soundtrack or the new remastered PSP one now the Famicom one sounds great I love the way that sounds and it's actually kind of funny that a lot of these songs I recognized but I never knew they were from Final Fantasy 3 the remastered soundtrack is very weird in the fact that it has really heavy overtones of Dragon Quest and while Dragon Quest music is nothing frowned down upon it still felt weird in a Final Fantasy game it uses a lot of brass and I, I think that's what really really stuck out to me and it was actually kind of distracting in a lot of places like oh huh that sounded like Dragon Quest still pretty good just doesn't feel very Final Fantasy we might as well stay on the uh, course of things I didn't like. One of the things it did was it limits to only three enemies per battle. I believe there's one or two in special instances where they allow more. That means they tweaked all the monsters. And one of the things they did was give monsters the ability to take multiple actions per turn. Especially bosses. Bosses are almost always two actions per turn. With some of them getting three and then the final boss getting four. And that always feels unfair. Even if it's balanced completely, there's something about it that just feels unfair. Because you could have a, you know, you will set things up, like, you know, the whole revive, phoenix down, plus cure combo that everybody uses. And it can be interrupted as soon as you use the phoenix down. Oops, it could be the boss's second turn. And it, it just annoys you, especially since phoenix downs are now kind of limited. You cannot buy them anywhere. Now, granted, I did finish the game with like 20 Phoenix Downs, but I was always terrified to use a Phoenix Down because I didn't know how many were in the game total. That's a bit of a con as well. Now, some things that the game does right, because we don't want to be the negative Nancy show. When you change jobs, and there are some negatives to the job system, of course, but when you change jobs, it comes at a price. The price is lowered stats for a certain amount of battles. Like if you have a warrior and you want to change it to a black mage for eight battles or four battles or I'd never quite got what lessened or lengthened the time. But you will have reduced stats for those amount of battles until that timer's up and then you have completely normal stats again. I like that because it, it decreases the temptation to just completely switch whenever you get a good weapon. I like the idea of having to pick a class and for a decent amount of time go, nope, this is the class I'm going to be, let's work on it. I like that. Now, what I don't like about the job class is that a lot of them are useless. Now, now before you crucify me, I, I know that you can finish the game with pretty much freelancers, which is a starting job, if you wanted. I get that, but I don't like having a monk 
and spending a whole bunch of time leveling up a monk, only to unlock the Black Belt class and realize, oh, the Black Belt's better in every way. Wow, I wasted a whole bunch of time leveling up a monk. Same with the Warrior. There's really... There are some points, but for the most part, you'll want to go from a warrior to a knight. And from that knight, you can, you know, spin off into other melee classes like uh, Viking or Dark Knight, things like that. But for the most part, especially with magic classes, magic classes get this really hard. It is incredibly aggravating to put a lot of time into a class and then, whoop, you just unlock the better class. Like, here's a good example. You have Evoker, which is, think of the trainee summoners, right? Whenever you summon Shiva or... Which, by the way, summons are in this one. And that is awesome because I'm always a big fan of summons. Specifically Shiva and Ifrit. I, I love those guys. It's great to see how they look in every game. But back, back to the Evoker. So you have an Evoker. And when you summon Shiva, there are three different possibilities of what she'll... No, two different. I'm sorry. Two different possibilities of what she'll cast. She'll either cast a white magic version of a spell or a black magic version of a spell. You know, like, uh, Ifrit will heal you or he'll damage the enemy. So, that's great. There's a little bit of chance involved and you get to see summons. It's one of But later on, you unlock Summoner. And Summoner guarantees that you will get their most powerful spell every time. Sure, you won't get, like, say, the healing from Ifrit, but who cares? You're doing a bunch of damage. I don't like that Evoker is now completely useless. This is a great time to talk about the leveling. So the leveling in this is a little bit of a hybrid between two and what we would think of as traditional leveling. You have a level, and what that does is that that levels up like normal. You get experience points, you level up. That affects a variety of stats. Now the job level, which every time you switch a job, you know, it, it doesn't reset, but if your level thief, your thief is level nine, and you switch to a monk, I don't know why I keep bringing up monk, maybe I just I like it, you'll still remain a level 9 thief, but you, you know, you, once you switch to monk, you're at zero. So that means every time you switch a class, you basically have to start over again, but it's not such a terrible punishment, because your level affects a variety of stats. Now the job level does affect, from what I read, how hard your magic hits, or how many hits that your character does per action. So you know, you'll, you'll press attack and your warrior will sometimes hit twice. And then if you raise your job level, you'll be hitting 13, 14 times because you have a very high job level. Some things like Geomancer spells are directly tied job level. So you don't necessarily have to grind job levels, which based on how many actions you've taken with that class. So if you go into a battle against a weak enemy, and this is a very popular way to power level from what I read, if you go take a class, you get into a battle with, say, a level 1 goblin, and you're level 15, you know that guy isn't going to do any damage, so you just stand there and guard, 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 until you think you have enough to do a job level up. And that's kind of a way to power level your job level. Now, it doesn't mean much because your HP is tied to your level, so, you know, that's kind of smart of them, but every class has different growth rates when you level up your, let's say, character as opposed to job. So, it's a bit tricky. Like, you don't want the person that you're leveling as a knight to spend a lot of time as a mage because their growth rates in the HP department won't be as high as if they had stayed a knight the whole time. Back to things that were a bit annoying. There are a lot of sections in this game where you have to shrink down to mini size. When you are in the mini size, every action you take on the physical end will always result in one damage. And if you're rocking a team that's mostly physical, these portions can be a right proper kick in the dick. So they were a bit frustrating. I mean, thankfully you can change class and work your way around it, but 
it wasn't just once either. It happened three or four times in the game, and every time it was just kind of a, uh, here we go again. Now speaking of hitting for one HP, the numbers in this game feel off. I never quite hit that point where I felt like the fights were a challenge. They were either smacking me for way too much damage, or I was absolutely slaughtering them. I never quite felt that the game's numbers were quite right. Now because of this, you may think you're doing well, and then you run up against an enemy and it just smacks you for a one-hit kill. This happened to me right before the Tower of Owen, if, if you know the game. And I had to spend a lot of time grinding to make it through there and still have it feel like a challenge. And there were actually, I wonder if they were specific checkpoints put into the game where they're trying to make sure you're a certain level. Because it happened three or four times, I believe, in this game where I had to stop, go level up my job a bit, go level up my actual character level. And I don't think that's bad, but even then, when I would come back after gaining, you know, maybe 10 levels in my job and a couple levels in my character class, it still felt, okay, now I'm a little too powerful. And the same story with all the bosses, too. Even the end boss, or the end bosses, one was fairly easy to beat, and the next one would be really hard. And there would be one that, ooh, this feels about right. This is a good sense of challenge. And then you just smoke the next one again. And I don't quite know what they could have done. Like, it doesn't seem like I can point to one specific thing and say, aha, that's it. Maybe that's why I do a podcast and don't work for Square Enix. Another thing that did tweak me just a little bit was the camera felt way too zoomed in. And that's not a big complaint. It, it wasn't so bad that it was unplayable. It was just I'm used to, especially now, playing the older ones, where you get like a pretty wide view of where you're going. In this, it is pretty zoomed in. It does get annoying when you're trying to find your way through a dungeon. Luckily, dungeons for the most part are fairly small, and after you spend some time in them, you'll memorize them and you won't have a problem anymore. Same with the actual continent. I'll get to more about what I liked about the continent later, but it was very easy to remember where things were on the continent because it's fairly small. Some of the places can be a pain to get into because you have to take these these weird routes and circumvent this mountain to come up north, you know, stuff like that. But it was fairly easy to memorize. Now, I guess, I guess, good times any to talk about the continent. So it pulls a bit of a, I believe, Terranigma and Dragon Quest three thing where, you know, you start the game and it feels like, okay, this is the world. This is nice. It's not too big, all of that. And then the world opens up and you find out you're on a floating continent and you have to go off the floating continent into the world below. It was right about that point that my interest really shot up in the story because before that point, it felt very boilerplate. So if you're playing this and you find you're, you're getting kind of bored or, you know, it's just starting to feel more like a grind fest without any payoff, try playing at least until you get off the floating continent because that was where my interest really, really shot up. So the way the classes work, I'm sorry to keep flitting back and forth, it's it's just things I'm remembering, things I wrote down, but the way the classes work is every time you get to a new crystal, which by the way, it is great that we're closing out the NES series with another story about crystals. Sure, there's only three, but it almost felt like a throwback even though it was only two, day, two, two days ago, jeez, two games ago. Every time you touch a new crystal is when that new pack of classes open. So you're very happy to see a new crystal because, yay, you got some new jobs. But then the back of your mind, like, yay, it's time to grind. Because if you touch the crystal and it opens up Viking and then you just try to continue on as a level one Viking, you're going to get smashed. Now, in this game, there are different modes of transportation. 
it's kind of standard Final Fantasy by this point. But you know, you get the you get the canoes, you can go up rivers, you get the airship, and you get two things in here that I don't remember in a lot of other ones. I'm sorry for, again for talking like William Shatner. But first you get the Nautilus, which is an airship, and after you do a couple story MacGuffins, you can actually use it to explore underwater. I don't know if it's the PSP version, but the underwater encounter rate is absolutely ridiculous. It's every three seconds, and I don't know if it was just some weird tweak or not. But uh, along with the Nautilus, you also get the Invincible, which once you get this, you've got the game in the bag. You go in and out of it almost like it's a building, and it has, it has four stores in there. It has one for items, one for magic, one for weapons, and one for armor. It also has a fat chocobo, which by the way, awesome, that you can use to store your items. And it has an inn that you can rest at without costing any gill. And the gill doesn't get too pricey in this like it does in some of the other games where you realize I don't have enough to actually stay at the inn, so I need to sell some stuff. But it is very nice. It, it's, it's a traveling base. And it made a lot of things easier, especially say you go into a dungeon and you realize after three, four battles, I'm not going to get to the end of this. It's always nice to be able to backtrack, go right back, rest at the end, go back into the dungeon, and then keep doing that until you feel like you're ready enough to go through the full dungeon. So I'd love to see that more often. And since my memory is out of a goldfish, I don't remember that being in anything else, but we'll see. That's the point of doing this stuff. As for the story, after you get to the underwater continent, or I guess the... the Ground floor would be a better way to put it. My interest shot up because that's when the story starts to kick in and become more Final Fantasy. Do you have things explaining about the Warriors of Darkness and how if light is stronger than dark, the four Warriors of Darkness come and they basically do the same thing you're doing except they're the Dark Warriors and you're the Light Warriors. This is the first one that hits with those heavy themes of balance in almost everything. I mean, I would love to see the game where you play as the Warriors of Darkness, not the Warriors of Light, but you know, that might, knowing the way Final Fantasy does that, that would be way too emo. But yeah, this is the first one where I noticed those really heavy themes of balance that Final Fantasy likes to throw in there. Now, once you get towards the end, which by the way, it is a complete cheat, that right at the end, where you're about ready to go through the two final dungeons, there's the Ancient Cave, and then there's the Crystal Tower, or Circus Tower, as I believe it's called in Final Fantasy XIV. I don't know if there's a difference or if that was just changed. So you've got those two dungeons you've got to get through, and there's not really a break between them. There's a little bit of a break where you can save, but you can't rest unless you've brought enough consumables. It'll it'll be a long, back-breaking stretch, right? And then after that, of course, you have the World of Darkness, and that's just bam, bam, bam. But right when you get to the Ancient Cave and you're, you're psyching up to go finish the game because story is getting very interesting and you want to see what happens. That's when it hits you with the final batch of classes. And it felt to me like a cheat to make sure you didn't finish the game too fast. Because these are arguably the most effective classes in the game. Like this is where you unlock Sage and Devout and Black Belt. It almost feels wrong. Because if you want to use those classes, you're going to spend a good chunk of time leveling them up. And I don't like that they threw that in right before the ending. Now, it is true you can finish it without switching to any of those classes, but you want to play with your new toys. So it just felt kind of wrong. Now, speaking of the story, this one is quite a lot heavier than the other ones that I've played so far, like 1 and 2. Uh, you have things like kings committing suicides to save their sons. 
you have that standard moment where everything seems too dark and you can't possibly go on because the dragon's power is holding you and then you have a character that goes around to all the other npcs in the game that you've met the important ones anyway and they all form a group to you know help save you and it's it's a nice little callback to all your npcs they, there's also the almost traditional man or woman sacrificing themselves for the greater good. You know, there might be a way out of the situation, but to hell with that. I'm jumping off this airship with dynamite strapped to my chest kind of thing. So it was kind of fun to see it there. I mean, the story isn't so permeated throughout the game that it hits you on a, whoa, wow, I can't believe Pollum and Porum just sacrificed themselves. You don't really care. But you kind of care. It, it's it's a weird. You're not invested in the character, but it's a character you know, so you're still a little like disappointed that that's the way things went. Now that callback when when they they gather the five lights to help with the dragon's curse when you get trapped in the mirror. That is that is nice. That made me smile quite a bit because those were characters that you, a lot of them uh, traveled with your well, a couple of them traveled with your party. Uh, or they were important to the story. Now, speaking of the story, I wonder if community and friendship themes are an inherently cultural thing. Because I've noticed a lot of Japanese media revolves around that theme. You know, how important it is to have friends or how important it is to have that sense of community. And it's just kind of the same thing for self-sacrificing yourself for a just cause. I wonder if that is something cultural. And if you do know anything about that, like that is a cultural theme. Like over here in the US, in case you didn't know, the stories in folklore we have are very much about a single person overcoming tremendous odds by their own will. You know, here's the broken man, but he stood up and it was just him and he fought for the cause. We very much tend to single out people as opposed to this group or this collection of friends. And I do know that this pops up everywhere, especially in Japanese media. And I wonder if that is something that's just a cultural difference. It's very interesting. I'd love to know about it if you happen to be able to tell me. So we're getting close to the end and that, that double dungeon right at the end is a real backbreaker. I think it pays off to finish it. Not that the story, you know, it, it's not going to change your life, but you really kind of go through hell, right? Because you get to the end and you finally climb to the top of the tower and you fight Zand. And he's a fairly challenging boss. You're like, all right, I know this is Final Fantasy. There's going to be one big one behind him that's been pulling the strings the whole time. It turns out, of course, yes it is, it's the Cloud of Darkness, which, by the way, I remember this from the Final Fantasy XIV raid, and yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm glad I got to see where that comes from. You're all psyched to go take down the Cloud of Darkness, and it slaughters you. But it was part of the story, so that's okay. You know, you have a little mini heart attack, and then it's like, oh, okay, whew. But then you jump into a hole and end up in the world of darkness. And I like the design. The design's very cool. The music is... is fantastic right but then you have to take out another four bosses and these bosses are rough i mean everything else up to this point has been like oh this boss has 39,000 hp or this boss has 19,000 hp but it hits like a truck these bosses have 99,000 hp and they all hit like you know when hulk grabs those trucks uses them like boxing gloves that's about what it's like i mean these things hit hard and I was really hoping there would be a point where you could save because I took down all four of them and then I got the Cloud of Darkness and I was just so beat up. Like I imagine I just limped up to her and just flopped over dead. It's really all I could do. I had to redo everything from the Crystal Tower all the way back into World of Darkness. So I spent some more time leveling and in the end I was level 
You know, I have it written down somewhere and I will find it right now. Oh, okay, so here we go. I was level 50, 51, 50, and 48. Now I don't know where this sits. I may have been over leveled, I may have been underleveled, but to me, this was a good level. I felt a good challenge. Having played other RPGs, the end boss isn't a huge deal. It's got the whole, you know, left tentacle, right tentacle, middle boss thing. And of course you realize you, you gotta take out the tentacles first. It was a good boss fight if you've stockpiled enough stuff. Like if I didn't have elixirs, I would have been shot. But I managed to break my way through and finish the game. And the ending is, again, very much fairy tale. Everything ends on a happy note. And you go back and you visit a lot of the people that you partied with. And it's kind of just like a final curtain call for a play you just watched. I love that. I love that. It's, it's a great way to end it. It doesn't need some final bit of pathos. You know what it does. I guess my final verdict on this would be it's a Code Veronica. And that means absolutely nothing to you people, but I will try my best to explain Code Veronica is a game where I like the way it looks, I like the way it sounds, I even like the story. But something about it just doesn't click with me and getting my way through it felt like a chore. And I can't quite place why. Nothing about it was so egregious that I immediately balked and went, oh, this is going to be awful. But to be honest, there were a lot of times it didn't hold my interest and I had to force myself to play. Which, in case you were wondering, yes, the same thing happened with Code Veronica. So, I would recommend this to anybody who likes RPGs. To me, this doesn't scream beginner RPG, just because you have those weird intricacies with the job levels and the regular levels. I don't know if a new person could pick it up or not, but I would say if you're a big fan of Final Fantasy, or even just played a couple of them, even if you just say you played Final Fantasy Tactics and you want a little bit more of that job system, it's not nearly as well done, but it's still a job system. It's a good one to play. If, if you're a fan of, say, anything after, I'd say four, I'd say you're good. Go ahead and give it a shot if you like Final Fantasy. Now, if you didn't, you don't like Final Fantasy, then why, why are you even thinking about playing three? But yeah, it almost feels like Dragon Quest three with the job system. It's like you can tell it's the idea is there. They didn't quite perfect it yet, which is weird because this remake came after Final Fantasy Tactics. I don't know why they didn't just rip that out wholesale and have abilities you could carry from job to job. I mean, I love that. That's great. It makes every character feel unique. But again, I'm not a game designer. There's probably pitfalls I'm not thinking of. Now, more importantly, next up is the Zelda game I remember really liking. Uh, that's Link to the Past. Now, everybody likes Link to the Past. That's nothing special. But yeah, I invite you to try to play along with me. If, it, if, well, if you can get your hands on it, that'd be great. I don't know why that'd be great. I'm just babbling at this point. Maybe some of my ramblings will make sense. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.